First Assembly of God, so glad that you are with us. Welcome those who are joining us online. Speaking of those who join us online, at 6 o'clock last night, we lost a good family friend. Uh, they relocated to Georgia a number of years ago, Alan Mangarelli. Bonnie, I don't know if you saw that, Alan passed away. But his son, Paul, and his daughter, Linda, and his wife, Joan, join us online from time to time. Uh, Alan taught me generosity. He was the one who gave us our first computer. Remember the DOS commands? With all the DOS commands, the thing was, you know, like this big. And uh, also, they had a condominium down in Seapoint Village in Wildwood Crest, and were just so gracious to uh, loan that condo to us anytime we wanted to use it. He, he had a heart for missions as well, and he, he's the reason uh, I'm generous today because he taught me generosity. Joan, Paul, Linda, our, our hearts go out to you today, and we know that your dad today is, is rejoicing before the throne room of heaven, and I thank him for all the impact he made upon my life. Well, today is the last day for our four-week series, message series we've been doing called Courage from the book of Esther. And let me just remind you that Esther is a historical book that records an actual event. Sometimes we talk about the story of Esther, and, and the story can seem like a fairy tale, but this is an actual event that took place in scripture, in history, a story of a young Jewish girl who was exiled, taken from her homeland, where her parents pass away, and she is adopted by her uncle. Through a beauty contest, she becomes the queen of Persia, and because of that position, she had influence, which eventually saves her people, her nation, from being destroyed. Over the past three weeks, we've taken a look at the different types of courage that we see in the book of Esther. The first week, we talked about the courage of conviction, how Queen Vashti refused and said no to the most powerful man in the world, King Xerxes, as he was drunk and wanted to objectify her. And she just said, no, I'm, I'm not going to be bullied. And then Pastor Matt talked about the courage of inconvenience. How inconvenience can be an opportunity for God to intervene in someone's life. So therefore, we are to seek opportunities. We are to step out in action. And we are to sacrifice for others. Because you never know when God wants to use an inconvenience in our life as an opportunity for someone else's life. Last week, we took a look at the call of courage. The courage of calling. How Mordecai was willing to adopt how he was willing to grieve, how he was just willing not to bow and to give in. And then we ended with the courage of Esther. Esther, who, who had this courageous courage that 
was willing to go before the king on behalf of her people, uninvited, even though it may have meant death. Well, today we look at the courage of change. The courage of change. What change takes place? Here's the question I asked myself. How do you reverse an irreversible law? How do you reverse a law that cannot be reversed? Because remember, it was Haman who was so upset because Mordecai wouldn't bow. He went before the king and they wrote a law They threw the purr, and on the 12th month, the 13th day of the 12th month, all the Jews were to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. And it was stamped with the king's ring, and it couldn't be reversed. So my question is, how do you reverse and irreversible law. The courage to change. I don't know if you have kept up with the changes that are taking place among our college campuses. On February 8th at a college in Asbury in Kentucky, God said in the last days, I will pour out my spirit. And now over 20 plus campuses are in the midst of an outpouring of God's spirit. There's a great outpouring in the Philippines. Carmita, I don't know if you have have followed that, but there's a great outpouring in the Philippines. The next report is there's a great outpouring in Spain. And I pray that along with this outpouring, there'll be a conviction to change the hearts of this younger generation. Evangelist and a good friend of mine, Greg Hubbard, who will actually be with us the first week in March at our church, shared this, that he felt God whisper this into his spirit. Revival will always be difficult for those who need control, for those who feel they need to reach out their hands and steady the ark. God, let your spirit be poured out. Well, we closed last week in Esther chapter 9, where we moved ahead a little bit, where on the 12th month, On that 13th day, when that king's order was to be fulfilled, the enemies of the Jews came to destroy them. And we read in Scripture, but on this day, the enemies of the Jews who had hoped to overpower them. But now the tables were turned, and the Jews got the upper hand on those who hated them. There was a reversal. And I said... 
There are so many ironic reversals in the book of Esther. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Of how you reverse an irreversible law. It's kind of interesting. I don't know if you know this or not. But the book of Esther is arranged in a literary device called a chiasm. Now what's a chiasm? We get a little insight as to what a chiasm is from the Greek alphabet. The letter X is called chi. A chiasm is where uh, it's an intersection or it's where two tracks intersect to make an X. And uh, I'll give you an illustration of it. There, there's an intersection. And Califon, just this week, I, Pastor Bonnie and I visited. And, and there at the Main Street in Califon, Philhauer Avenue intersects with Main Street. And that sign, the two intersect and form a chiasm. They, if you look on top of that sign, you would look down and see an X. But in literary work, a chiasm is a repetition of similar ideas in reverse sequence. It's a repetitive, similar ideas in a reverse sequence, forming a mirror image. Now, don't get nervous when I show you this, but here is an example of an outline of the book of Esther. See it? And then it reverses. It gets to the point of a climatic point, the turning point. And we're going to get to this point today where Haman is humiliated and Mordecai, and Mordecai is exalted. But remember in the first week we, we talked about how did the book of Esther open? With a feast, with a festival that lasted 187 days. The feast of the king. It showed the greatness of King Xerxes and the splendor of Persia. It was a time for him to display his wealth and, his, and, and the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of, of his kingdom. And usually the kings would throw this party right before they went to war to instill confidence in the men that they had enough wealth to see them through this war. And then you see Esther becomes queen. Mordecai saves the king. Haman is exalted to power, but then if you get down to C on the bottom, Mordecai is exalted to power. Queen Esther and Mordecai save the Jews, and the book of Esther, it starts with a feast, and it ends with a feast. The Feast of Purim, named after Pur. A celebration that is even existed today. In fact, I think it's March 6th on sundown, the Jewish people will celebrate Purim where they will read the book of Esther. They will have a festive meal. They will share food and drinks as a gift to family and friends. And then they will give a gift to the poor or to a charity. So it begins with a feast and it ends with a feast. Now, last week, we ended at chapter 4. And I said it was like a cliffhanger where Esther and his people, they were were just fasting for three days. No food, no water. Preparing for her to go in before the king. 
And it was like the final episode to series one. So we pick up series two, episode one, chapter five, where now Queen Esther goes in to face the king uninvited, which could mean death. Think about that. If I perish, I perish. She would have to go in and admit that she deceived the king because she was Jewish. She would go in and request the king to reverse an irreversible law. She went in to oppose King Xerxes' second man in control, Haman, who he appointed, which would be a blow to his ego. And now it begins. When she went into the courts and he saw Queen Esther standing in the court. All throughout today, you're going to see the sovereignty of God. He was pleased with her and he held out his golden scepter that was in his hand. That was a sign, you're welcome in my presence. So Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king asked, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? And he even goes as far as saying, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And we see the sovereignty of God, of how her life was spared. And her first request was granted. You know what her first request was? She says, I have prepared a banquet for you and Haman that I want you to come to today. And immediately the king called for Haman. And Haman came in to fulfill the request of Esther. And there, at that banquet, he says, Queen Esther, what is it that you want? When the king says, what is it that you want? Come on, how many know that's an awesome opportunity? And she says, if it pleases the king to grant my request, I request your presence tomorrow at another banquet that I will have for you and Haman. Why not take the opportunity when the opportunity is good? And he granted that request. Now, I want to stop for a moment because I said throughout the whole book of Esther, there's a lot of subplots. And next, Esther, the book of Esther, has a way of showing the heart of the wicked. So listen to what Haman does. Haman went out that day from that banquet in high spirits. Haman is celebrating when he should be mourning and repenting. He's the one responsible for this law to have the Jews killed. And he went out happy and high in spirits. He walks past the king's gates and he doesn't see Mordecai kneel down. And the Bible says Mordecai had no fear, but he wouldn't kneel. Haman goes home and and he's like, wow, the king and I were the only ones invited to the queen's banquet. He has power. He has wealth. 
He's got the signet ring. He's got everything a person could want. But the wicked still is not happy. He's still not satisfied. And he even says, all this gives me no satisfaction. That's the first guy who wrote, I can't get no satisfaction. As long as I see that Jew Mordecai sitting at the king's gate, not kneeling to me. And he went home. And you know the wicked is bent on the destruction of the righteous. And he says to his wife, Zeresh, and all his friends said to him, it's simple, build some gallows. Build a gallow, 75 feet high. And have a noose hanging. And go in and ask the king in the morning to have Mordecai hung on it because he won't bow down to you. Now, you want to see the sovereignty of God at work? That night, it just so happened the king couldn't sleep. Yeah, not. You know how I see the sovereignty of God moving? God kept the king awake. And it just so happened he called for the book of Chronicles, the records of his reign. Now, he's been reigning for 12 years now, so we're not talking, we're talking massive books of all the recordings of his reign. And it just so happened that the part in the Chronicles that was being read was the time when Mordecai exposed a plot for the king to be assassinated. Come on, my friends. There's no consequences. Here is God's timing. God is at work while the righteous is sleeping. God's timing is always under God's control. God's timing is always perfect. At that night... The next morning when Haman was going to go in and ask for the king's permission to hang Mordecai, it's not a coincidence that the king couldn't sleep. It's not a coincidence of where his chronicles were read from what part. And the king said, whoa, I never honored Mordecai for saving my life. And all of a sudden, we we see this reversal of a situation where the king, all of a sudden, what did I ever do for Mordecai? Well, Well, you didn't do anything for Mordecai. And the king all of a sudden says, I need to do something for Mordecai on that very night when the next morning, Haman was going to come and ask for his life. Come on, my friends. Don't you know God's timing is always perfect? So Haman, uh, King Xerxes, what can I do to honor a man? Hey, I, I need to talk to, to one of my, I, I, I need to talk to one of the officials. I need, I need to talk to somebody. Hey, who's in the court? Who's in the king's court? And the scripture says, it just so happened. No. But who was in the court at the time when the king needed some advice? Haman. And do you know why Haman's in the court? Haman's in the court early that morning because he wanted to go in and ask the king 
for his permission to hang Mordecai. So King Xerxes calls Haman in. And he says, hey, Haman, I I need to honor somebody. And Haman's thinking, who else does he want to honor but me? I'm second in control here. How can I honor somebody? And Haman starts saying, well, give him one of your robes. uh, Let him ride on the king's horse. Parade him through the town. And tell everybody, this is how the king honors somebody that he wants people to recognize. And you know what Haman's thinking. Give me the robe. Bring in the horse. Oh, and by the way, and he didn't even get the chance to ask the king's permission to kill Mordecai. And King Xerxes reverses the situation and tells Haman, go get Mordecai the one who sits at the king's gate and and, and do everything I've just told you. Do everything you you just suggested. So Haman took the robes and put them on Mordecai, placed him on the king's horse, led him through the city square shouting, this is what the king does for somebody he wishes to honor. Afterwards, Mordecai returned to the palace gate, but Haman hurried home, dejected, completely humiliated. A reversal of a situation. Come on. How many here this morning are in need of a situation to be reversed? Come on. The reversal of a sentence. Remember what the queen's second request was? That the following day, she, she holds another banquet for he, the king, and Haman. So they come... And the king says, okay, what is your request? It's, it's been 24 hours, enough suspense. I'll give you up to half the kingdom. What is it that you want? And Queen Esther says, if it pleases the king, I need you to spare my life and the life of my people. For there is a law that you have signed that your signet ring put the seal on it that on the 13th day of the 12th month the enemy of our people are to destroy, kill, and annihilate us. King, if if we were just sold as slaves, I wouldn't even bother you. But this is the life of my people. And the king gets a little frustrated. And and King Xerxes asked queen, who is he? Where is this man who dared to do such a thing? And Queen Esther said, the adversary, the enemy, is this vile Haman. Then Haman was terrified before the king and queen. Where Haman is exposed. The king becomes so angry, he left his wine and went out to the garden. And Haman 
Well, we see a little reversal in a situation, an ironic reversal. Remember how Mordecai would not bow down to Haman and he showed no fear? Haman now is shaking in his boots and he bows down to the feet of a woman. Pleading for his life. Knowing what the king's going to do to him. The king comes in and sees Haman basically bowing down at Esther's feet. He thinks that he is molesting her. And he orders Haman to be hung on the very gallows he built for Mordecai. A reversal in sentence. And then we get to chapter 8. And there's a reversal in supremacy. In chapter 8, you know what the king does? He gives Queen Esther the estate of Haman. Everything that Haman owned, he gives the queen his whole estate. And Mordecai, when Haman was ordered to be hung, the king took back his signet ring. That signet ring was the seal of his approval. And he takes that signet ring that he took from Haman, he takes it off his finger, and he puts it on the finger of Mordecai. And he basically gives Mordecai permission to write a law that would spare the Jews. So how do you reverse an irreversible law? You gotta leave it up to the sovereignty of God. And what does he do? He writes a law where the king's edict granted Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves. To destroy, kill, and annihilate any armed forces of any nationality or providence that may, might attack them and their women and their children and to plunder the property of their enemies. And do you know when this was to be fulfilled? On the 12th month, the 13th day. And then in chapter 9, Pastor Bonnie, you can come. On that 12th month of that 13th day, when the enemies of the Jews came to destroy and kill and annihilate, they had an order from the king that they could fight back, and God turned the table and gave them the upper hand. When I think of a reversal of a sentence... Aren't you glad that your destiny has been reversed? Because we were all destined to die. We were all destined as sinners to live in a Christless eternity, separated from the presence of God. To me, the greatest reversal we read in God's word is 2 Corinthians 5.21 
God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Become born again. Sins forgiven. The promise of everlasting life in eternity with him forever and forever. I'm looking out wondering, is there one today out there who needs their destiny reversed? You need to give your heart to Jesus Christ today. Or maybe you're out there and you've been praying for a loved one, a family member, for their destiny to be reversed. You've been praying for their salvation. Maybe you're out there and you need a reversal. You, you need that prodigal to come home. Maybe there's a reversal that needs to be done in a financial situation. Maybe there's a reversal that needs to be done in a health situation. Maybe there's a reversal that needs to be done in a relationship situation. All I know is our God specializes in ironic reversals where destinies are changed, situations are changed. Would you stand with me? Thank you, Jesus.